I'm Stephen Aaron Deinhardt IV. Welcome to the Giant Lands Podcast, hosted by Amusement Sparks, with your host, Andrew Spahn. Welcome to the Giant Lands Podcast. This is Andrew Spawn. I'm also the host of Amusement Sparks, and with us today is the one and only Stephen Deinhardt IV. How are you doing, sir? Well, thanks. Good to be back with you, Andrew. Yeah, we haven't talked Giant Lands in a while, but but uh, the game is officially out now. How are you feeling about that? Oh, really good. I mean, I tell you, uh, you know, especially at the end there, you know, some folks were saying, hey, man, you know, you, you know, acting like I didn't want to get the game out. And I tell you, hmm. getting it done and getting it delivered is a, is a big relief to me. And seeing people uh, take pleasure in it is, is a real joy. So, uh, you know, it's been a long process. Not that long of a process, really, in the scheme of things. I mean, I've mm-hmm. worked on some big budget games that took, you know, 10 years to hit the streets. Right. So, uh, you know, less than three for an indie project ain't bad. And um yeah, so it's 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 really rewarding, and you know I think the best part is uh, seeing some people really starting to get it and to get into it and uh, to embrace it for what it is, as opposed to you know just what the hearsay on the internet is. Right, absolutely. But you've got some like relatively decent um, coverage, and I think a lot of people are excited about the idea. Um, a lot of it even bigger than the game itself, but like the concept of getting into the theme parks, like the, the interactive experiences someday is a thing that I feel like has captured a lot of people's imagination. Is that something that you've been like, uh, talking about or focusing on a lot recently, or is it mostly like start with step one, like get the box product out? Yeah. I mean, I think if you look back at the history of our discussions, particularly, you know, uh, back with the Gen Con, uh, where we met and launched, uh, the, the, or should I say kicked off the product? Um, yeah, I, I, I pulled back from focusing on it so much because I really went on to just focus on creating a relatively traditional OSR, uh, role-playing game with books and dice. So I didn't want the focus to be mixed reality or even necessarily the live experience or the park. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's all, um, stepping stones and, you know, we're getting there. So yeah, at the uh, first of this year, um, I released our first uh, park concept, um, which was uh, drawn by an associate that worked with me on Super Nintendo World, and he worked on like Tokyo Disney Sea and all this stuff. I'll I'll say wow. his name, contact him if, if you want to employ some of his talents, uh, Richard Gutierrez, um, and yeah, he did a lot of uh, work for us on Mario Kart and uh, generally uh, with the layout at Super Nintendo World. So. And actually, when we worked on that project together, we didn't know each other. I knew his artwork, though. And mm. one day one day we met online. I said, man, it's so weird. You know, I was surrounded by your art for so long. It's so nice to, to wow. know the man who, who was behind it. And, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, he, he was uh, been collaborating with us on uh, Giant Lands. And he just did that work this fall. Um, so I had actually wanted to include it in the box set. But some people t- advised me to kind of hold back. You know, you don't need to give out everything right away and um uh yeah so we're 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 moving towards that concept now and i think it it, it's um, something a lot of people are embracing because um we need a space i mean i think so many of our i'll say sacred spaces um are um have become exploited 
um, or politicized to a point where it's just not fun and you don't feel safe anymore. So trying to create, you know, I tell people we're, we're creating something outside of the matrix uh, where we can wow. all go and, um, you know, enjoy ourselves together. That's such a fascinating way to say that. And like a, a good point too. like, man, something outside the matrix. I love that. I mean, it's, it's, a game but what it represents can connect on like a deeper level than than your everyday life like there is something so liberating about about role playing and in a way it can be a truer form of yourself than than who you are every day man that's that's mind-blowing i always like loved the concept of um like uh with bruce wayne and batman that that bruce wayne is actually the disguise and batman is who the guy actually is and in some ways you know your role-playing character can be more who you truly feel like you are and who you are going to the office every day is is more of a mask and you just have to kind of do that to get through um but man that's that's a powerful thing and what a cool idea for like a uh a mecca of of this role-playing concept that's amazing yeah, well, I think anyone that's ever worked sort of in theater or been in theater or been on the stage knows that feeling. And and that's why, you know, masks and costuming is important, too. Somehow it's, you know, you put on a mask, you put on a costume, and suddenly you're transformed. And why it's, while it's, and you're just not burdened with so much of that stuff that gets pushed on us really by society and other people and ourselves, you know, to try mm-hmm. to kind of stay in alignment with that. And suddenly we can break out of it for a minute. And yeah. um, and express parts of ourselves that we don't get to otherwise express. And um, I think there's a lot of uh, genuineness to it. So, you know, I, I uh, used to do a lot of slam poetry and I had a lot of friends that say, actually, when you're doing that, like it's like you're more alive than I ever see you. Mm. Um, and I know that when I'm up there on the stage expressing those poems that I do, I, I feel more alive. I feel more true to myself. So, you know particularly in the context of an RPG, you know, there's a lot of tabletop folks that say, well, I don't want to do it. Well, I can understand that. And I don't want to say that's why, you know, I don't want to take away the tabletop experience. I love that for what it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I think we're all sort of uh, reluctant to embrace it. And um, you'd be surprised how someone who might seem sort of, um, I'll say, introverted or cynical um, or skeptical of such a thing, um, given the right circumstance, you put a hat on them or you give them a mask or you put a fake sword in their hand and suddenly they'll become a pirate. Right. Absolutely. And, and everyone's afraid of that until they try it. You know, it's it's a thing where it's very predictable that people will be like, well, no, no, thanks. Like, I'm not really that interested in that. But once you actually try it, like you might absolutely love it. And it's extremely common for people to say, I, you know, I don't want to go out of my comfort zone right now. Um, but yeah, but it's an extremely powerful thing if you're willing to kind of give into that and like experience life in that way. It's it's a beautiful thing. I think it, it kind of captures like the magic of of like Halloween or, you know, which is a thing that I feel like is a much more mainstream uh socially acceptable version of of this concept of putting on a costume to kind of become someone else and it's it's a real experience and a real awakening for a lot of people i think and then with a game like giantlands you can kind of do that every time you play the game like have that same experience where it's not necessarily like even escapism but you're you're traveling to another place and resuming a life there like working on um that that fiction world that you want to be 
a member of. It's a really cool thing in a way you can learn lessons and kind of take them between uh, the game and real life, you know, the different realities there. It's a fascinating thing to me. And I think role-playing games are have such a unique uh, advantage over video games, which I know video games are obviously a gigantic industry right now um, and will be for a long time. But I think it connects to a similar thing in a way. And video games can be absolutely jaw dropping and you can really like connect on like a spiritual level with them too. But I feel like it's, it's more, um, it happens with role-playing games more frequently around a tabletop with people, I think, cause it's, it's a social experience. You are experiencing this, this fiction and the, uh, the visuals and all the like, you know, amazing storytelling and stuff that goes into a game of any kind. There's just something special about, about role-playing games and them being, uh, you know, offline experiences. It can be, it can be a fascinating thing. Yeah, it's, um, you know, obviously I've done a lot of purely digital and screen based experiences and, you know, I still love the screen, but yeah, getting away from the screen is something that's important to me. And I think it's important for us as a, as a culture and society. So what's nice about a role playing game is that, you know, it's it, it really can bring a diversity of people to the table under one common cause to have a good time together. And to tell a good story and to have a great adventure, right? Yeah. And and there's something really fundamental um, for us. I don't know, as a species or just as creatures, as, as human beings, perhaps, about sitting, gathering together, um, and telling a story together. Um, and I think, particularly in the context of a fiction. Um, you know, it becomes especially fun because we can sort of, um, you know, push on boundaries that we might not otherwise be able to push on if we're retelling a story or, or trying to map something uh, onto the real world. And, um, you know, I think this is why sci-fi um, is especially good uh, for what we're trying to do here, too, because science fiction is traditionally a way to be able to address things that people might not be so comfortable to address or might not have um say the verbiage to express but if you offer them a way to do that sort of metaphorically uh, symbolically through a new ritual um they can kind of reframe their present reality a little differently and you know we're all so burdened now um through not only the political environment, but, you know, we're all expected to live and work online. We're all supposed to have this sort of social presence online that's visible to the world. And it's just not how we're built as creatures. And it's really daunting. So there's something nice about, uh, you know, having experiences that are offline um, and that where we kind of come together in a space where this stuff just isn't around. So you're not you're not burdened by it conceptually, at least, um, and are able to, to perhaps express stuff that you might not otherwise find the space to express in normal life. Right. Well, I love that connection with sci-fi, too. Like, I do think that's such an important part of, of on a subconscious level, why a lot of people like sci-fi is it's kind of questioning and criticizing and imagining what a better reality could be. Because it is so much of it's like almost based in in satire of like, here's this dumb thing that humanity does. What if the concept is we don't do that? Or what if the concept is that thing is turned up to 11 and we see how that would impact everything else? But yeah, yeah, you're right. That's that's a really interesting connection there. And I do like the idea, too, 
of a, because it is a lot of pressure, like living in modern society and having an online profile, these things that are permanent that, you know, someone can always go look up on your social media accounts or whatever, or you feel like, well, this has to be, this next post has to be cohesive with, with my last year of posts because I'm telling a story and all of that stuff. Like it can be a lot of pressure, but a, a, a live role-playing game it doesn't have that pressure. Not only are you in character where you don't have to necessarily, you know, stand hundred percent behind what everything your character does. Um, but, but you don't have to have it be permanent either. It can be something that, that happens in the moment and just the people around the table know about it, but it's just, you know, it was a moment in the story for a character. It's, it's something you can be working through and kind of playing with as a human being, sort of like sci-fi where you're like, you know, I'm, I'm curious about this thing or, or, you know, I'm drawn to these kind of things that our society looks down upon, but if it's within a sci-fi context or it's just play, then you can actually work through that. Like it can be a very therapeutic thing. I've had um, guests on amusement sparks who work in therapy through role play. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing that gets people um, out of their comfort zone and out of their own skin a little bit to where they can be more free to kind of explore uh, different concepts, things that might be holding them down, things that they might be curious about, or just, you know, things they need to work through and kind of to, to play with to make sense of it. Um, I think it's a, definitely a way that, that human beings learn. Like if everything is just, you have to take it how it is, and there's a lot of pressure on everything, then you can't really learn that way. It has to be, you have to be able to arrive your own conclusions and kind of play with things to figure them out. Like that's just what we do as as humans in, in a more and more digital age. It can be hard to to do that where you don't really have the autonomy or the power or you know you're being watched so you can't do it freely like if as if you could in a pre-internet age where you can just talk to someone at the bookstore about whatever you want to and there'll be no you know repercussions they won't know who you are there's a lot more anonymity and and more real human connection honestly um before the internet and i know that's complicated with how i just brought up anonymity because there is a lot of problems with anonymity online these days too but it's uh yeah it's hard being a human. Yeah, I saw a good headline, you know, and I didn't read the article. You have to forgive me. It was some op-ed piece. Uh, but, you know, we all should know less about each other. And I thought that was really apt. You yeah. know, uh, we just, there just was no time in history, um, uh, whether it's celebrity or the average person, that we spent so much time in these, these gossip ciphers, um, picking each other apart we're following the minutia and yeah it's it you know it brings a lot of pressure i mean we hear about people that have made their careers on it i you know i do do it uh, you know my sort of online presence stuff really it's all for promotion you know i do it so that hopefully i can get more work and that's that's where i started doing it you know back in the early 2000s i know you have a lot of unique experience with with kind of um it, that's digital like online storytelling as as performance art basically yeah yeah and it, it, for me it was really healing because i had created a persona um that i wasn't very happy with at one point there um you know or, or, you know before we started recording we were talking about divorce and i had gone through a divorce and i was really sort of tired with that person um that people thought i was that i didn't feel like i was and so I thought it would be a lot of fun to take the online presence that I built and play with it and melt it down and try to, you know, pull some alchemy on it to see if I could find some gold on the other side. Um, and I really think I did. And I, I, I think that uh, with RPG uh, particularly, you know, I got real deep on it almost academically when I was at Ever Evermore Park. Um, 
and uh, read this really great book um, whose title escapes me right now, um, but really was focused on the idea that RPGs are really about playing with identity in the context of a community. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a lot of that. And yeah, you know, uh, you know, safe space is a word as a term that gets abused a lot. But I, I think it, games have always been a safe space for me um, and certainly a lot of folks I know to play with identity um, in a way that isn't going to have consequences outside of the context of that game. And that's that's why it's healthy. And, um, you know, this is a, a concept I started addressing in my own work, at least, um, when I wrote my book, Narrative Designer. So, uh, and then it's all kind of ludology stuff, narratology stuff, but it comes from this uh, ludologist, Johan Huizinga, who wrote a book called Homo Ludens. Um, and he was one of the first people to study play and say, this isn't, this isn't silly. This is something fundamental um, and important. He said it's a, it's a significant function. And that doesn't sound like much, but it was sort of revolutionary. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you, you, you had expressed it just a moment ago there that that experimentation and discovery through play um, is important. But we know that's how our kids learn. You can see it. You can see it. that's how dogs learn, right? They, they play fight with each other. It ends up actually, this goes, this goes throughout um, the animal kingdom, right? Up and down. Play is is a is a way that all kinds of creatures use to test boundaries. So play is not only a significant function, it's actually a skill um, for survival. And mm-hmm. it helps us to understand our boundaries. It helps us to understand I guess boundaries is, is the way I should leave it. You know, boundaries yeah. of, of our existence, boundaries of ourselves, and, and in a way that doesn't have consequences, um, you know, outside or as much as, 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 as it might have if it was a real situation that we were playing out. And, you know, I started saying it at Evermore, and I still say it um, uh, because it's, it's something I believe in these spaces is, you know, uh, um, you know, who you are today is not necessarily who you are tomorrow. Um, and that's okay in these places. Um, and it invites, I think, um, RPGs, since I've played them all my life, I mean, that's part of the fun is I'm not this little boy uh, stuck in my parents' basement with, you know, my big sister picking on me or whatever. I'm a, I'm a knight. And I'm running around some fantasy landscape, you know, with orcs and goblins and elves. And it's a, it's a very healthy um, escape into the imagination. Um, and, uh, and at the end of the day, you can walk away from it and go back to your real life. And I think that there's lessons that we take with it from us. And, um, you know, uh, I, as a as a game maker, I'm I'm interested in those lessons. As an artist, I guess you know mm-hmm. I tell folks it's 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 something I don't like about binge culture right now. It's um, it's really easy to keep something going forever. Um, it's really hard to end things well. And as as a storyteller, and there's something that's really powerful about. I mean, you go look at these films. You know, for most of cinematic history. Um, but particularly, let's say the seven, 60s through the 90s, when a motion picture uh, was an hour and 15 to maybe 
an hour and a half. I mean, there were some long ones that were two hours plus, but not too many. I mean, and, yeah, we could talk about ones that were eight hours long or art films or plus, but that's, you know, we don't need to, to go there. So, and I think, um, but you would, you'd go into this experience, you'd have a sense of catharsis and then you'd leave. I remember uh, the experience I uh, think of most fondly is we went to see the Bruce Lee story. I don't want to date myself too much, but it was sometime in the early nineties with all my friends. And we went to this little art house, um, local film theater and we saw it and we got out and man we felt like we could take on the world man if we just learned a little kung fu and some wisdom from bruce man we could really do it and that 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 moment is a powerful moment and that moment comes from art um and it's delivered through catharsis and the way that happens is at the end of a story and when something is over you begin to process it otherwise you know you're mentally we never really get there Wow, um, yeah. You're right. And if you have to remember 25,000 different plot lines from the same story, when it's done, you don't really – it's too much to process almost. You can only process the final arc or something. Yeah, and there's never any clean resolve because there was never really any plot. And and that's that's the, the kind of uh, catch-22 that write, writers' rooms around the world don't, don't want you to know about serial content. Wow. There really is no plot because they don't have to make a plot. They mm-hmm. can they can make you think there's plots and subplots and then just change it. And that's why so many of these shows get wrecked at the end of the day when someone says, OK, we're going to close the show like Adventure Time. I mean, I love Adventure Time. But then, you know, you get down to these the last few seasons and they're, you know, Pendleton Ward wasn't involved anymore. And suddenly they're they're trying to take these plots and subplots that were from previous episodes that were just fun. They were just made for mm-hmm. fun, but they take them too seriously and suddenly have to make, try to make sense of the universe. And in trying to make sense of it, it makes no sense. Right. And then when you start the whole series over, knowing how it ends, it can be, it can make the whole experience not as enjoyable where a film, most of the time starting it over again, you know, it's, it's the same contained experience and, it gets better with maybe repeat viewings where I think a lot of TV shows, especially long running ones don't no. going back to the beginning of the Simpsons, for example, after watching new ones, it's like, what, what happened to this show? <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. Or, you know, I think, you know, the Boba Fett show is, is a good example that some of the episodes I've really enjoyed. Others are just, I mean, they're just gobbledygook. And, um, <laughs> you know, you, you kind of wonder how do they get, how do they, you know, make people believe this is worth spending millions of dollars on and stuff. I mean, it's, I mean, how did this ever leave the floor? But, you know, we're just in a culture now that just wants more. And as a creator, it's one of, one of the things I almost didn't, you know, pulling it back down to the giant land stuff, you know, and I've, I've had this happen before with other stuff. We're such a consumer culture that this is why, you know, we're used to getting a whole show at once. This is what's interesting about the Disney plus model. No, we're only going to give you one a week. Right. Whoa. That's you expect me yeah. to come back. Old you expect school. me to come back. Yeah. You're not going to release, you know, uh, you know, do the Maya and the three and, you know, release, you know, a four hour, five hour bit and expect people to watch the whole thing at once. But and we become we've become sort of uh, used to it. So, you know, playing the small guy now that some people think we're a lot bigger or I'm a lot bigger than we are. Um, they want, you know, well, where are all the supplements? Where's all the extra content? And so, whoa, guys, we'll get there. We'll get there. Like, I just, I just was focusing on this box set for now. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no kidding. I mean, that um, is a good sign though, that people are hungry for more, but it is also a thing where, you know, we don't necessarily have that. The anticipation can be such a like delightful 
thing, knowing like, oh my gosh, next year this thing's going to happen, um, rather than I finished the first book, so where's the second one? It's like, well, the writer's still writing. <laughs> it's going to take a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, it can be a thing. Like we, we can get so plugged in with with breaking news and the things that are happening every single day on social media where it's like, it feels like you want what you want today, every day. And it's like, that's, that's not how it works. <laughs> you know, it's, it's wild. There's, there is finite content, even though, you know, there's 16 years of content being put on YouTube every day. Um, it is still finite. There's still a finite amount of stuff that, that fits your exact niche and what you're looking for and what you're hungry for. So it's honestly better to, to be able to enjoy being a little hungry because it's going to make the meal better when it, when you do get it, I think, you know, patience is important. Yeah, for sure. So with, uh, with giant lands, I know that you have had a a long journey and it's been kind of a, a a lot of it, you know, you started the idea. It's been a, a thing that's been your own baby and the team has kind of grown and shrunk. And, and how are you feeling about the, the giant lands team at this point? Uh, well, you know, I try to make sure people understand it's a project team. You know, I, I work full time on it. Um, but you know, everyone else and, um, just kind of contributes when they can. And I appreciate it. Some people are contracted, others aren't. And, um, yeah, I feel great about it. I think, um, you know, there's, oh, as a creator, you know, you're always your worst critic. So there's, there's things I could have done better and, uh, things I'd like to change, but you know, uh, I'm in a, a very fortunate space right now where I believe that's possible, and I know that over the the next year, um, we're going to be delivering more content um, that's going to grow the universe. It'll be tighter. Um, you know, we'll. I'm not sure if it'll happen this year, to be honest, um, in terms of another version of the box set. But we're going to, you know, continue uh, refining the rules. Uh, we have a program where I'm asking people, you know, to give us feedback so they can get credit in future editions as we tune the game. Cool. Um, and, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's just a lot of fun. And because I uh, went out and did it on my own, you know, we don't have to be accountable to really anybody but ourselves and our fans. And that's a, that's a nice space to be in. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. It is an exciting thing. Like as, you know, conventions start to return and hopefully COVID calms down eventually because um, it is such a good thing to see in person and to experience like at a convention setting would really be ideal for for this game. Um, what are your, your thoughts or, or feelings about how, how COVID has impacted the development and growth of this very like kind of in-person focused uh yeah yeah i mean it's it was sort of odd i mean too many things uh, you don't know maybe maybe you know i I was listening to the zeitgeist too much when i sort of dove into it but you know it was a little too on the nose to be a post-apocalyptic now you know i mean Mm. especially you know you know the whole idea that you know mother earth sort of gets ticked at us and destroys civilization well that sort of seems really familiar almost right now <laughs> right. Uh, which is not a place i expected to be personally when i started the project right it's kind of life imitating art i guess yeah right um yeah. and that's happened a few times over so particularly um when i started it one of the big things and it was you know uh, through this experience of going from kind of the peak the, i'll call the pinnacle of my um, virtual and mixed reality stuff with uh, Super Nintendo World and Mario Kart and, you know, really trying to get people to step inside the screen at mm-hmm. Universal. Um, I get the opposite of that with Evermore. Um, 
which at first I was sort of not too happy with because I was, as a game director, I was told that I was going to have this smart park and all this stuff to build systems with for, you know, these mixed reality game systems. And I got there and actually it was, there was none of that. It was um, very much, I say, you know, pen and paper, you know, Mm -hmm. IRL kind of stuff. And, um, um, but I realized how much we just lean too much on tech, uh, I think through that. And I got real excited, uh, you know, for my own life um, as a direction I want to go. You know, I think I'm just, I've, I tell people, it's like I, I built the internet. I mean, sure, we all did, but I was there early on. I worked in the internet and I feel like I've been sitting in front of a machine now for 25 years. Um, and it it's not a good way to live a life. Um, and I would not recommend it to others. So I tell my kids, you know, don't, don't be like me. You see me sitting in front of this, this machine all the time. I'm trying to get off. That's mm. one of the reasons I'm building giant lands is because I want a place I can go every day and not be on the computer. I, you're right. It, be, it feels like it's becoming more ubiquitous, but that also makes it more terrifying and less enjoyable. If it's just something you get constantly, then it's, it's not a reward anymore. It's, right. it's a need. You're just a cog in a machine at a certain point. So then the first opportunity to really pivot um, came with the cancellation of GaryCon uh, that we were sponsoring in, gosh, you know, it all blurs together now. I guess that was 2019. No, it was 2020, I think. 2020. Uh, in the spring mm-hmm. of 2020 there. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that you know, and they, to Luke and the, his team's credit, they pivoted very quickly from a very in-person event um, to a virtual event. And they got some press and Forbes from it and all this stuff. Um, I didn't want to embrace it because it was sort of contrary to the mission that, that I just mentioned mm-hmm. and thought, you know, I know I don't I don't want to go that route uh, because it's a slippery slope. Uh, and I really want to keep uh, doubling down on this idea that, no, we will have a time in the not too distant future where it will be OK to get together and to share dice and to laugh together and to do it like old times offline. I mean, this is one reason too. you know, I get a lot of people that want PDFs, you know, and eventually we'll do it. But I don't really want people to have computers on the table when they're playing the game. I don't want mm-hmm. them looking, looking at screens. Yeah. I want them looking at books and dice and paper and each other. Right. Um, and that feels yeah. like a romantic vision almost like that feels archaic, even though we were all doing that pre pandemic, but it just feels yeah. like it's been so long. Like before the pandemic, it was exciting to get, you know, shiny tools and like use online um, stuff to do your role playing games. But, but yeah, I definitely, I feel like a, a, a deep missing of, of that, like longing for the the accoutrement that come with with role-playing games and card games and physical things you put in your hand that don't have a screen on them it's wild right. i feel so, like an old man saying that but i, I isn't it weird it, I yeah i know yeah that's i say the same thing it's like gosh i think this is just being old um <laughs> but there's and it's something... not though because because no. right, like when we were kids i feel like people were the same way like people were um is luddites the right word um where they, they don't want to use technology and it was a different thing because um, they were just naysaying it because it hadn't existed yet. And we are kind of naysaying it because we've lived it, you know, I think it's different. It's a more earned thing. 
Yeah, exactly. No, no, and it's I don't want my you know, and I, I do it for the future really because I'd like to do it, but I want to make sure because it's just going to get worse, man. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that there's a place where people can get offline and have fun and not feel so burdened. That you know, that said, you know, it's like the uh, you know the pandemic happened, and you know I see people pivoting towards it, and I'm like, well, maybe I should. Um, and now it's just, it, it's with the whole, you know, metaverse thing now and everyone's, it's like, man, not only they, they don't want us just to be online all the time. Now we all are supposed to get inside of the computer. Mm. Um, and, uh, in a way that, you know, I just, I don't feel very good about that said, you know, I think that, um, at this point, uh, because of the way things are panning out, um, that yeah, I am p- pivoting to a solution to try to address both, um, to try to encourage people to get offline, um, but for you know a range of reasons, whether it's just people that are too far away or you know might not have um, the ability or the uh, the time and money to to find a group of people to play with, mm-hmm. uh, to to try to facilitate that in a way that I feel good about. Um, you know, I've had some people, you know, and not just in the context of, of playing the, the tabletop game, um, but the live action experience. I've had some people for a while that have been telling me, build a virtual world, build a virtual world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I've done that so many times that, you know, I've, I've really kind of said, no, I don't. I really want this to be a place you can like see with your eyes and feel with your hands and smell with your nose and walk into and like a tactile real world thing. That's a. That's important to me, and it, it's still important. Um, but um, you know, uh, uh, trying to find ways that I can leverage it to get um, it in front of more people, uh, to make it more relevant, um, and um, you know, so so part of I think how you do that is you know take it back to the the Matrix analogy. You know, you have to go into the Matrix. Um, in order to leave it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. That makes um, a lot of sense. So um, it's 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 sort of like with our online presence. I mean, I sometimes uh, just want to delete particular accounts uh, because I, I say, is this is this doing the opposite of is this am I kind of engaging with the opposite sort of stuff that I'm preaching um, in terms of getting online? But um, you know, it's it's a. I like to think it's sort of a, a message in a bottle, and that's how we reach mm. people. And they are yeah. people that are that are trapped online. And we say, no, there's another place, and it's and it's offline, and, and you can go there. Totally. And by by existing in both worlds or being able to switch back and forth, you can reach a much bigger audience. And kind of like we were talking about earlier, you can learn lessons within a role playing game that you can take to real life, and and vice versa. I think the same thing with stuff like like metaverse, like, you know, if there is a, a VR um, kind of proof of concept of of giant lands, I think people can can get a taste of it there. But it, that can't be the only thing. Like if it if metaverse becomes everything like it, it's so extreme that you are totally out of balance and your real life doesn't doesn't matter anymore. I feel like that's a huge downside. But I think it should be, yeah, the, the, there's a happy medium, you know, like there is some level of using technology or checking social media to learn about stuff like giant lands, but then, you know, the actual experience, a lot of that is, is better in person. Yeah. yeah. And I think that it it is a tricky thing, but I think at the end of the day, it's a a message. A lot of people 
will understand, you know, particularly, um, you know, uh, let's, I guess if you frame it in the context of, uh, gosh, what, what are some of the numbers? You know, there's still a billion people or whatever it is, a couple of billion people on planet Earth that don't have Internet access. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, you know, I guess we could we could paint it in the context of privilege or being from the first world. You know, uh, we've uh, been saturated in this stuff for so long um, that we're we're able to see it. I'll call us maybe maybe the better way to say it is we're you know the alpha consumers of a lot of this technology. Um, that if people don't feel this way right now, um, they will feel this way, and it's and it's something I think that I guess this comes back to what you were saying. You know, it's something that we're not ludites, right? or Luddites, um, we are uh, saying that actually there needs to be a balance here and we can't live purely online. And there's something very healthy about getting off of being online um, and, and goofing around and, and not, mm-hmm. and not, uh, you know, feeling like, um, you know, the whole world is going to, you know, chase you down on a witch hunt, you know, because you, you tried just on some different shoes that day. Or, right. You know, and um, that's that's sadly where we are. There's so much pressure. I feel like, especially on on young people, it's it's easier to kind of see or observe just the the culture that they're kind of growing up in. And um, yeah, if if something if there's always a permanent record of everything that you do, if everything you do is going on to TikTok or whatever, then it's just like I don't know. There's there's so much more criticism that's going to happen yourself your own criticism by looking back and saying oh why did i say that back then like you know there's a lot of things i probably said in high school or middle school i'm really glad there's no record of and oh, it's yeah. a healthy thing and, and a learning experience of just like playing a game um where it's like oh i tried this thing but that really didn't fit like it was i was trying it on it didn't work for me i i that experience let me learn that that's not something i want to do well and, but and so playing playing with identity i mean we mm-hmm. used to be able to play with identity Uh, very comfortably i think in sort of high school and junior high and stuff like that you know some people were more adept at it than others and maybe they got labeled chameleons or whatever maybe it was a little too much of it um but you know yeah we all kind of went through different phases and periods and gosh if i would have like you know had to be online when i was you know through a particular phase of my life and that becomes your identity i mean oh Mm -hmm. boy that's that's you become so limited by, by the decisions you made in the past right. where if, if there's not records of things, then you're, you get to be who you want to be today. Um, I mean, that's kind of idealistic to talk that way, I guess, but like it can be such a, a challenge if there's a, a permanent record and everything has such permanence and such pressure and such visibility. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, and then, and then, then like you said too, that the pressure to maintain that sort of characterization of ourselves mm-hmm. You know, right. oh well, I need to I need to make sure to keep posting in that voice, or I need to make sure to to keep, you know, my statements in alignment with some kind of larger agenda of a quote unquote community that I'm part of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, it's it's yeah, it's just not healthy because we do need to play with it. We do need to experiment. You know, it's okay to contradict yourself. It's totally. okay to you know to to say I'm learning. I've changed. That's not the person I was, and um, that's hard to do when we have, you know, um, you know, people snap, you know, taking snapshots of everything or sort of say screenshots of everything. And, you know, uh, you know, people try to maintain stuff that, I mean, that, that, you know, online that said, you know, part of the problem too, is that we become too fixed on it, that online is permanent. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as I've said sort of for a number of years, you know, particularly working in the space, no, it's not as permanent as you might think. So all that stuff you might be thinking that you're creating this permanent sense of identity, all it, all it requires is one person someplace to pull a plug. I mean, that's yeah. really all it requires. And poof, you know, it's gone. Um, right. And, and um, you know, so it, it, it can work on the other side of that where, you know, you're investing a lot of time into things that you think are permanent, but they're actually just the infrastructure isn't there. I mean, the whole Internet as it is right now um, could very easily disappear if we just shut down the right computers and turn them off. You know, it, would, it wouldn't be here in five to ten years. Um, totally. I, you know, I, I've seen it myself uh, recently, uh, just so much revisionist history. Um, it's really bizarre. And I've, I've been watching it sort of play out with Wikipedia and all this stuff. It's like, you know, a site goes down that once was used as a reference for other sites. And then, you know, a fake news site comes up or someone with a different opinion comes up and it and suddenly it's like rewriting history. So, I mean, the narrative designer thing for me, you know, I, I don't get too caught up on it at this point. But I, I was raised from a Wikipedia this year, which I think hmm. is we- we- weird myself. Um, yeah, that is weird. And I, I went and when I figured it out, I tried to figure out, like, how did this happen? And I found the people that did it. And but, you know, they're like, you know, these weird accounts in Korea and Germany and stuff like that. Um, and then these I mean, there's some things people consider news sources out there that says Ernie Gygax owns my company. Interesting. Yeah, I, I've seen some like bad reporting. The, uh, some some website I read today, like I was looking just Giant Lands News and something, it called it, um, the game was referred to as Giant's Country or something. Like, that was like the headline. It's Giant's Country, new game from TSR or whatever. And I'm like, what, where did they get this information from? Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, and I sometimes want to control it, you know, and say, hey, and to keep it on task. But it, I mean, it just comes to a point we just have to sort of say, well, you can't control it all. It's such a mess. So, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a strange thing to see. And so my work of 15 years, um, is suddenly a lot of it's just been erased from the internet. And, uh, you know, part of me is, you know, a little upset by it, but at the same time, I'm like, you know, it's just another example for we get this idea that there's there's this permanence with this stuff. But, you know, Facebook goes down and the whole world, you know, can't figure out where its head is or how it's going to go to the grocery store, apparently. Right. Um, so all it would take is, you know, um, someone not to renew a, a server or to screw up a DNS and mm-hmm. su- suddenly all that information has gone. Yeah, that, which would feel like such an upset and such a... a- the end of everything we know but life will go on we've leaned on on those tools for so long that it feels like it's the only thing that exists but it's not true we're we're humans and we will there will be another you know reality that forms itself in the the next version of the internet or whatever right well this is this is you know from a tech from a tech but aspect this is in paradigm shift stuff this is when it starts to become really interesting because there's you know some people in the world that didn't go through the tech boom of the 90s and the early 2000s and, and they've just they're getting onto 5g and have smartphones and that's sort of their first taste of this stuff and so mm-hmm. um you know it's 
it'll be interesting to see how that plays out as you know these new generations of technology uh, get rolled out onto some other folks and uh, you know what what we consider the internet now well, you know I don't think will exist in 20 years that's for sure um, and uh, you know there are you know I, I, I found it amazing myself as a technologist just with the Facebook thing you know I've sort of gotten over it but how are we all using a website that feels like it was made in 2006 and how, <laughs> and, and how, it looks and like how, it too yeah it looks like it yeah that's that's what I mean and it yeah and and somehow it's the be-all and end-all here in 2022 like if someone would have told me this in 2002 I would have been like absolutely not have you seen where media is going we're doing all this rich media stuff on the web it's gonna look like broadcast television blah I mean whatever I mean uh, totally and and no, I, apparently, if I just would have made a, a really good word, kept kept my WordPress sites going, should I say, <laughs> uh, and, and you know my what is it, movable type platform? Because I mean, sometimes Facebook. I mean, it's like, is this just an overgrown WordPress website? I, don't, I just can't. Anyway, that's um, the aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know that stuff won't be around too long, and um, you know whether it goes out like the like radio. Or, uh, you know, uh, like cable television, you know, it dwindles. I mean, cable is really struggling right now because we don't want nobody watches it anymore. We, you know, we don't need it. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's just they're all switching into being streaming services like a little silo Netflix type thing. That's just, oh, here's your Showtime shows and here's your, you know, well, HBO Max is a little different because it's a big old silo that's eaten a lot of other silos. But, but well, yeah, I, right. actually, yeah, I started the Apple TV trial last night just to see what it was about. And they had a couple of flicks I wanted to check out. But it's sort of the same thing there. You know, they don't I mean, what do they have, like 20, maybe 30 pitchers um, hmm. that, that are quote unquote Apple. And um, yeah, the rest of it is Paramount and other stuff. So it's it's, you know, it's the same the same thing, really, just packaged a little differently. And, you know, they got us all paying you know, 50 plus dollars a month now for essentially cable again. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> they did it again. But yeah, it is, it is so cyclical, isn't it? Like the same things that we thought we had escaped from show up again. And the, those, you know, what was innovative about the way the internet can look 20 years ago is still the way the internet works and looks. But it's, yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Those, those little trends. Yeah. We could pull that back down to like, uh, you know, the the tabletop RPG stuff as well, you know. Uh, sometimes I ask myself, "Am I just playing a nostalgia card?" And no, I mean, there's there's certainly a lot of nostalgia that I'm playing out, um, you know, from my own life to some extent. But um, you know, that for kids that have not played games offline, this stuff's revolutionary. They're like, "You can do this. Like, I I can run a game. I don't need a computer." You're like, "Absolutely, man." Um, you know, it, it really started hitting me about 10 years ago when I was a professor of game design and I'd, I'd have these students, uh, that would show up and say, Hey, I want to make the next Morrowind or whatever it is and the next uh, EverQuest. And, um, you know, they'd have these, these huge grandiose things they wanted to make, but they had never, you know, made a character in an RPG, a tabletop RPG. They had never figured out how to run an encounter or run an adventure for their friends. And so um, much to their chagrin, rather than showing them how to 3D model, I said, no, actually, you guys are going to go get the red box and you're going to learn how to play D&D &D and how to run it for each other. And that's how you're going to learn uh, to be a game designer. 
Um, and that was sort of, uh, you know, the, the first part of the program before we, you know, would get into sort of more high level stuff. But it, it, it works so well. And sure enough, within, you know, two semesters of this stuff, you know, I could sit down with them and they could design an encounter on paper and then translate that into a digital uh, uh, uh you know, game or, or program, I guess, and make it a digital encounter, I'll say. And, uh, and it would still work. And, um, you know, uh, it, meandering, I guess, a bit, but, you know, with Mario Kart, you know, I sort of did the same thing when I showed up there, you know, because we didn't have a prototype of it yet. <clears throat> so I said, well, guys, let's just make this on paper. And people kind of went cross-eyed. They're like, what? <laughs> like, well, we can really just model this on paper. And I made it. I made like a Mario Kart board game. Um, that was the ride that we could play through together to try to understand it. Um, it wasn't high tech enough for them. And I think we could have learned a lot more from it. Um, but yeah, you can model things, you know, that you want to make on the computer in paper and pencil, and they can still work when you take it over there. You know, I would often tell my students that, and, you know, we don't realize it so much or some folks don't realize it so much, but the computer is actually a very limiting tool. Mm -hmm. um, and it's all built on very particular concepts and paradigms. So while you can do some things um, very well with it and more easily, um, you can do a better out of the box thinking off the computer so that when you come to the computer you're using it as a solution and not as a crutch a hundred percent i i relate to that so strongly and it it can be such a, a huge breakthrough to take things kind of old school and go back to pen and paper and just like let's just lay this out and look at the concepts breaking it down to its fundamentals you can see the magic a little bit more clearly it's less um fogged up by the graphics and the interface and all these other things that can get in the way that's something i love about game design is it can start with just you know a pen and paper prototype of something you can see if, is it worth doing is that a bad idea like fail fast and then move on to the next one kind of thing yeah versus if everything has these these assets and everything you don't really know what's going on or where the magic is. It's just like all packaged together so tightly that you can't separate out what's the good part of this and where, what do we need to change? And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tricky thing. That is such a, a, a powerful tool, especially, you know, when, when working with young designers or something where they've only seen these things in a virtual space or a digital space, and they might be really good at designing assets within that, but it's when you break it down to pen and paper, you can just cut away a lot of the stuff that doesn't matter at least to the initial design phase yeah. and and look at it um more objectively and more clearly to figure out what's what's so important and yep i mean one of the big lessons i mean since we're in in there i mean that i i try to get uh, students in and i i inherited this through my own training is with those initial prototypes they don't need to be pretty don't worry about your art. They shouldn't be because, pretty. Yeah. yeah, yeah otherwise like, you'll fall in love with the pretty picture instead of the actual game. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's yeah, just focus on how it works and creating that, those sorts of feelings that you're interested in. And then if you, if you're able to do that, you can worry about art, arting it up um, and spending mm -hmm. the, the time and energy to do that. But yeah, if you spend all that time making beautiful assets and you discover it's a terrible experience, you're not going to want to throw it out. Right. Absolutely. It's it's like having a really cool shirt, but you're just a turd of a human being. It's like, it'd be better to be a, a, a good person with an ugly t-shirt on. 
<laughs> and then I, you, you know, can get cool clothes later to, to it, match your persona once you've figured out who you are. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I tell people, I mean, the only billionaires I've ever met generally like wore clothes from Goodwill. And that's why mm-hmm. they were that's why they were billionaires is because they didn't go out and buy fancy pants. Wow. <laughs> that's fascinating. <laughs> fancy pants. <laughs> Such a good insult. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. There's well, it comes from the this Ralph Bakshi talk. I, I, I watched too much. It was San Diego Comic-Con, I want to say 2008. Um, and, uh, you know, he, you know, his thing is, you know, do you want to work on Shrek two or three or four or five so you can buy some fancy pants? And like go to the party, and he's like, I don't understand. All the directors I'm meeting now, they all have fancy pants. Is that why they do this? Um, <laughs> That's great. And I sort of understand it because I've had some fancy pants in my time, and I'm like, Ralph, you're so right. I don't need fancy pants. You know, the fancy uh, pants were inside you the whole time. You know, it's... yeah, exactly. So do it. Do without the fancy pants for a year or two. Don't eat. You're not going to eat. You know, a filet mignon. Um, and focus on getting the work done. Um, mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you'll probably be a lot happier with what you have. And it, you know, I feel that that philosophy has helped me a lot with Giant Lands. And yeah, at the end of the day, now I, I don't, you know, I've been wearing the same clothes I've had for a number of years. Uh, <laughs> but um, I've I've made something that I'm really happy with and that I own, um, uh, which for me as a creator is is really important. And I can keep working in that world. You know, I'd love to go back and revisit some of the projects I've made for big studios in the past, uh, but I can't because they're not mine. Mm-hmm. And um, also, too, um, you know, we don't we don't end up building a life uh, for ourselves uh, with those things. It's work done for hire, um, and people always assume that you know. Uh, we're going to get a cut of those things, but at the end of the day, we don't. And I think that's when that really hit me hardest was at Universal, because as much as pe- Universal is is very good at compensating people um, and treating them well, um, I sit there think thinking, wow, so this guy just engineered a ride that's going to generate $20 billion over the next 30 years, and that guy gets none of that? Right. That, that doesn't make a that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, it feels really unfair, but it is extremely common. Like that's yeah. how almost everything works. It's yeah. Brutal. Well, yeah, and it's it's come to the point now where, and that's what's so fun about the crypto NFT space now is that they're sort of trying to figure that out because it's come down to the Facebooks and the Twitters, um, and now it's with this metaverse stuff where they're like, oh, hey, you guys create all the content for us. You know, the average consumer, the you know the Roblox model, get the kids to do it for you. Um, and it's essentially digital slave labor. Um, and you know, digital slavery is a term that sounds pretty loaded. Um, but if you go and look at it, there's, there's a lot of reality to it. And it's, um, it's a place we are in, are in as a society and it hurts people because they spend all day creating content for Facebook and Facebook Mm -hmm. will encourage them to create more content uh, and and you know give them quote unquote rewards for it um but these rewards are things that don't buy bread they don't buy shelter they don't buy medicine um they buy more attention on their platforms mm-hmm. and and so that you have to keep providing so you get these people that you know i mean since some people break out of it and you know are able uh, to turn that into a life making money um but it's it's a really a long long tail 
And at the end of it, a majority of the people just become burnt because uh, we've spent, and I've done it too, spent years creating content for these social media platforms, essentially, thinking mm-hmm. that at one point it'll turn over, that it'll convert and suddenly we'll get rewarded for it. But it doesn't for the most part. Um, and they expect us to perform because they can't do it. And without us, Facebook doesn't have content. Twitter right. doesn't have content. And so they need to keep us in this, um, this cycle of delivering uh, value to their platforms. And then they, they take our data and resell it and all that stuff. So that's the this, this secondary sort of market for it. But at the end of the day, we're all content creators for these platforms that give us no rewards. And shouldn't they? Like, I mean, shouldn't if, if, yeah. if Facebook, if you create a great Facebook post or something that goes viral on TikTok and they're running a ton of ads around it and p- vendors are making money from it, shouldn't you get a slice of that pie? Right. You would think that that would be a thing that's given to everyone, not just like chosen people who have been like picked up and, and escalated to be, you know, more premium. Yeah, the influencers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's brutal. And it is it's like you're you're unbalanced in the way of you're spending too much time grinding for gold in your RPG. It's like you can get a little bit out of that, but there's definitely diminishing returns. You know, there's there is something to be said about creating a a product or finishing your creative project or your podcast or whatever and posting it and and there's some power there but also it is a thing where it's like don't let that become your everything or or you'll lose sight and get burned out and it has a lot of downsides if you're not balancing that with with in-person life and social time and all that stuff yeah and all those things do incentivize you to abandon everything else and just work 24 7 on making more content it's it's brutal it is and it's um you know, to a point where people think it's normal and it's okay, and it um, it really just takes advantage of us all. So this is this is something that you know, which is interesting uh, to kind of tie it back to the you know the teachy RPG space, you know, and really sort of the transmedia space because this is something we tried to figure out in transmedia or alternate reality games, as, as some people uh, we try to use that term for it. But but really, when you have um, your users, your consumers, your players, your guests, uh, whatever you want to use. At one point, I said, "What did I call it? The the viewer, user, player." That like got me a, mm. a, a a TEDx talk at the first TEDx. But anyway, um, uh, for something the way I had framed it at, at that point. But uh, what um, is uh, interesting is when we say, "Well, I want like uh, you know." Uh, Let's look back at uh, old school RPGs, not old school RPG. Yeah, old school RPGs. That's the right one. So not not OSR, which I've, I've learned to differentiate from old school. So old school, hmm. while they did have modules, really encouraged people as players to go out and create their own content. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Go make your own adventure. Use what rules you want. Um, that's OK. Um, and. Um, there wasn't as much of this erosion between author um, and content as we live in now. So as, as we've kind of moved into the quote unquote digital revolution over the past uh, 20 or 30 years, uh, people have tried to ask that. So if I am in a game and I make a great character um, and that game maker says, hey, we really like what you're doing. We want to we want to showcase you. We want to build a platform around you or we really want to use your story. How can that be done in a way 
um, that's beneficial for both parties. Um, and um, so this is a space that's especially interesting uh, when you start moving into the live action realm, uh, particularly with what we're trying to do with giant lands, because as much as you'll go to that space to see a show and there will be a cast of characters, um, both real people and uh, uh, I'll say effects driven people, whether that be uh, practical or, or digital effects. And um, uh, you are uh, invited to, to step into a character and you become part of the show. So how do we how do we enable that in a way that fairly rewards people for their contributions mm-hmm. um, and also doesn't trap them um, into a mode of of that sort of pressure of having to make content uh, for a platform that isn't benefiting you or that is taking advantage of you Um you know, how do we mitigate that to make it uh, more fair? So, um, you know, there's some interesting solutions we're looking at for that. You know, particularly um, uh, some people have, have jumped on it right away, you know, I guess uh, within the community um, because they say, hey, I want to publish my adventure, my Giant Lands adventure um, that I'm making for my friends. How would I go do that? Well, we haven't really figured that out quite yet and we don't really have a license so no we don't want people publishing the giant land stuff now if you know someone goes and does it on their own and creates a zine or something for them and their friends obviously that's cool Mm -hmm. um but we don't have um the legal framework in place right now like a d20 system or gurps um some people do it just with classic um tsr games now because the copyrights are sort of i don't know i'll say yeah you know it's unclear who owns some of this stuff. So you could still create a supplement for, say, original D&D and might not uh, get a cease and desist uh, from Hasbro because there's questions of whether or not they could really do that. You might want to you might have to be careful about how you say it on the other side. Um, but and this is this sort of homebrew has been uh, around for a long time. It's how. How a lot of it's how Greyhawk came to be, um, you know. Uh, I guess Blackmore wouldn't be the case, but um, uh, you know, there's there's been a number of them, and um, you know, they kind of they kind of trickle up as opposed to down. Mm. So, uh, so that you know, it's something that's applicable both in the context of a traditional tabletop role playing game space. You know, would you let a, a player publish a supplement? Right. How would that work? Could I Mm -hmm. could I could I publish my character and sell it to people? How would that work? Um, And the same is true when you move into sort of a a mixed reality space um, and particularly when it becomes sort of theatrical. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think people will come to the park to see players. They will come there to see players that play well. Um, both in how they conduct themselves, how they present themselves. Um, and really, it, it starts to become not very different than a, a traditional sort of uh, pro professional sport of a different nature. Mm-hmm. And it is cool to see how something like Giant Lands can, in the future, be almost a solution for so many of these downsides to social media that we're seeing. Not only is it getting people off of screens, but it can also be kind of solving that problem of of a you know creators' uh, rights or creators royalties that kind of thing that's a really cool idea and 
the underlying premise is there that that you know paper prototype so to speak is that box product and and over the iterations and over the years it can become more and more well refined and more realized and that same true you know core to it will always be there because what you've done is is like we said not just make a digital shiny thing but like a true uh simple concept premise and then started to build from that true like um really authentic origin the the world and the lore and the rules and everything and like it's going to keep expanding out from that but it comes from a very authentic and inclusive and exciting well-intentioned place and it's just it's really cool and exciting to see how that how that grows and evolves over time you thanks yeah it's it's a I mean, it's an interesting space. And, you know, I tell one of the anecdotes I tell people is um, comes from uh, uh, Universal when I worked there. One of the first things I was asked to do and given I think it was mostly just a a fake out um, uh, to see what kind of creative solutions I'd come up with for it because I didn't Hmm. want to disclose what I'd really be working on. Um, But I was asked how I would game uh, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter and how I would turn it into more of a game. And naturally, um, when you're if you're familiar with it and you've been there, you'll see that what people want to do and what I also want to do. And I wasn't really a Harry Potter fan until I started going there. And I'll say that now I, I do enjoy Harry Potter where previously I didn't. Um, You want to go hang out. You want to be part of that world. You want to be a character in that world. And that's Mm -hmm. why when people go there, they buy the Hogwarts costumes. They identify with, you know, whatever uh, uh, school they are uh, within, or what do they call them? House uh, Mm -hmm. uh, within uh, Hogwarts and um you know and they buy the the clothing for it they get the wand for it because they want to step into it now i as a game designer saw that and said yes let's make let's push that further right um the thing the thing is uh you start butting heads with the creator of that franchise who's jk rowling and jk um very clearly said and i've known people that have tried to make a harry potter rpgs um, not just in the context of Universal, says, no way, no. I I don't want, or she doesn't want, which is understand, she's a traditional author. She doesn't want people authoring characters in the Harry Potter universe because she loses control. I mm-hmm. mean, what if you or I could make a Harry Potter, right? And then suddenly it's, it's not about that. So, and that's what's fun about, um, you know, one of the reasons we went with creating an original IP for it as opposed to trying to find some license we could use while it has other challenges with it. It has this blank slate. Another reason we used a future setting Mm -hmm. because it's a, it's a blank slate. So like you're setting or stated, uh, we could um, provide that setting, that premise um, and invite people into it. And my, my real hope is that uh, players will help the universe evolve. I mean, some people step into and uh, expect these mega arcs and you know great epics um, on launch with it. Now we'll have adventure modules that approach that, and you know we'll do feature films that have epic arcs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the in the context of of the park, yeah, we'll have shows there for it. But the game itself, we really want that to be driven out of our players and the decisions they make, um, so that they feel. Um, as they should, that that their decisions matter and the choices they make matter. And this is this comes back to a concept that really I got from this guy Eric Zimmerman um, about creating meaningful play, um, and that's 
that's what I want to do. You know, we can all sort of run around and, you know, like we used to do when I was kids, you know, pretend our, our broomstick is a sword and, you know, grab a, you know, the top of a garbage can and pretend it's a shield. Um, but um, when you are, so when, when you're able to see that uh, your actions have uh, more ramifications uh, in, in a greater context and not just, hey, I defeated my friend, suddenly your, your actions start to have a little more meaning. And when, you, and when you see explicit change, say, I took an action, I can see the effect it had and the consequences it had. And, you know, it comes back to this idea. I know we've, we've talked in previous podcasts, you know, and I don't see it so much out there in, I'll say, meme culture. But I remember it 10 years ago being pretty predominant. People saying, I'm not good at life. Hmm. I'm really good. I'm really good at these virtual games and video games, I'll say. Um, but I, I'm bad at real life. And that was a very sad statement for me. And so, yeah, one thing I try to reinforce through my game design um, is that you do matter. Your choices do matter. And they have implications. They do have impact. So, and that's part of the fun of, of mo- with the RPG sort of modeling a real world is you can see the, the positive and negative consequences associated with that. So that, you know, hopefully when you go back into your real life, you know, I'm not sure what level of impact it might have, but it just might have a little impact when you're making similar decisions uh, that might have uh, explicit uh, repercussions, explicit meaning things you can see directly uh, from, from your actions. That's beautiful. Yeah, I guess that's what we can all hope for and aim for and that's kind of what's happening um, even on a subconscious level when we play as we play when we play games we're we're learning we're understanding we're figuring ourselves out and figuring the world out yeah very much so so uh in my book a uh, narrative designer which i guess i never sent to you I, I it's one of those things where i don't even have copies of the latest edition right now um but yeah i, I relate it to uh this dance um that bumblebees do um, and so it goes down to this is sort of uh, why, uh, you know, I, I made up this thing called the player teller, or the fabulator ludus. So and even bumblebees do this. So um, there was a study done where they took them to an island, uh, these the set of bees, this community, and um, they put two and it, there were no bees on the island. So they had a control for it. And it was a largely abandoned little island. Hmm. Um, they had these two sort of potential places where the bees could nest set up on the island um and one was clearly not a great place uh for the bees based upon you know the sort of nesting grounds i guess uh, bees traditionally enjoy um and the other one was more ideal and they let the bees go and then they sort of marked them as they would show up at these locations and watch what they had done uh, when they return to that spot where they started and how they communicate. So um, when the, the bees that had found the location um, that was more advantageous from a survival aspect for their community would dance, a, a bigger, crazier dance um, than uh, the other bees. And this is how they communicated uh, to the other bees that they should go to this other spot rather than the other bees reporting back that that didn't do this dance and uh, or did it to a lesser degree. So that hmm. to me is is showing this sort of this this fundamental aspect of how we're built as creatures where we sort of go out and we push on boundaries 
And then we come back to our community or to our family or to our friends, you know, whatever, which I guess is community. And we tell them a story about what happened. And this is why history is such a strange thing. Sometimes those better stories are more convincing for us. And we sort of have a good nose for it, though. We can tell when stories aren't real or they're fake. There's just there's something that's not right about them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but stories that sort of come from the truth um, somehow help us to understand life better. So there's this, this uh, very interesting function that play serves um, to help us understand those boundaries and to push on those boundaries um, and this comes from uh, this guy, uh, uh, James uh, Kars, um, who wrote a book, uh, Finite and Infinite Play, uh, which is um, a game theory book uh, from the 80s. And some people equate it to the, the Manual of Motorcycle uh, Maintenance and stuff like that. Um, it's, it's sort of a very interesting philosophy book as well. And, and one of the things, you know, divides the universe into finite and infinite games. And I think we did this on the podcast before, mm-hmm. but we did. So, yeah, you know, and there's something really powerful in the context of an infinite game. Finite games tend to be closed systems. So, you know, you don't learn. I mean, you might learn stuff from playing soccer. I shouldn't discredit that or, you know, your normal normal sports. But in the context of of, uh, of an infinite game, uh, what you're and I, you know, really, I, th- I see infinite the big infinite games like science and art um uh, culture as a whole possibly evolution is that um we are kind of pushing on boundaries um and trying to see which boundaries are real which are non-existent and those those moments when we encounter boundaries or we have to change the actions we're taking in order to find a new boundary or to accomplish a task um is what we go and tell someone so that's why very much when i design systems i'm not so interested in creating a great novel or um telling my story so much as setting conditions for a player to be able to step in and play in the system and walk away and tell their own story about what just happened and i think that's that's um something that comes to me from my study and experience of real life. And I really do believe that um, it's it's something innate to us as creatures that's built into consciousness. And it is a survival skill. And that when we try and we fail and we try and we succeed, there is, in some ways, we're very much kind of helping the whole universe evolve. It's a, it's a, it's a really uh, sort of peculiar thing, but I... Um, uh, it's something that uh, I deeply believe in, and it's kind of my mission as a as a game designer is to help people find a space where they can fail, and that's okay, and they can push on boundaries, and they can discover new ways of doing things or being or new ways to express themselves that when they can come back to the real world have uh, real implications uh, on their own life in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a noble goal instead of just, you know, churning out another story, like as, as captivating as stories can be, but rather giving um, a really nice stage to to some, you know, budding new actors, so to speak. It's like making space for new new people to tell their own stories and to explore themselves without it being just a um, a prescribed 
you know, here's the story, just sit down and watch it. It's, it's much more of an old school RPG mentality of, no, we're not just acting out movies here. We're like, we're telling our own movies as we go. It's, it's a cool, cool idea. I love it. Thanks. You know, it's one reason I try to tell people that while I drew on some very, I mean, it's pretty broad, I guess my influences and a lot of them come from my own heritage and what I wanted to focus on in Giant Lands. I invite people to also bring their own heritage to it and, and what, what it'll look like in the future when they're able to realize their full selves and the spirits of their ancestors are walking with them. Um, and uh, I don't know what that looks like for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, with, with the way the game is now, I've, I've tried to, to paint what I think it looks like for me um, and to invite people to, to step in and do the same and, you know, create marvelous spaces. Again, outside the boundaries of norm, the normalcy of the now, um, you know, who will you become, you know? That's great. Yeah, what a great tagline, too. I feel like it's so inspiring and represents the overall mission so clearly with with a tagline like it, it's it's Thanks. very well done yeah i can tell you spent some time thinking about that one because it's so streamlined it's so good well yeah, cool. yeah it's uh yeah i worked worked hard on it that's awesome <laughs> um for the listeners if they want to learn more about giant lands we've got several other episodes of the giant lands podcast right here in this feed um but where else would you recommend they go steven um, there's all kinds of social stuff out there. We've been trying to get our own Discord out out there. There is like an unofficial one. I don't know. Maybe you can jump in there. I try to stay <laughs> away from it. Um, we do have an official one where James Ward has been showing up uh, on a daily basis in the morning to answer questions uh, in a thread wow. uh, we have there. And I've uh, we I, we just published. I figured out how to do the permalink, and I have that published. We have that published on, uh, I think, uh, Facebook right now, so you can jump in there. But yeah, we're on all the sort of uh, traditional platforms. Um, you know, we only have a few hundred left of the uh, box right now, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's an exciting time, and and people are uh, starting to receive the game, or I guess have been receiving it for about a month now. So at first, uh, starting arriving, I'll tell this story. This is I know we're trying to wrap up here, but. Um, yeah, it was fun because, man, I was gunning it so hard to get this game out the door and, and, and trying to do it correctly. But I really wanted to make sure to get it out before Christmas, if at all possible. And uh, we, we started having our first deliveries there on uh, New Year's Eve. Or not New Year's Eve, I'm sorry, Christmas Eve. Uh, the morning of Christmas Eve day, I guess. And um, it was just, it was so magical to that not everyone had got to have that experience. But for some people, you know... It showed up right there over the holidays uh, with a knock at the door, um, which was really rewarding for me. So it's, uh, you know, yeah, it's it's a fun time, and uh, the game is out there. You know, it's a small community right now, but we do have a community, and uh, yeah, we're trying to invite people into it. So much of the nostalgia that gets sort of uh, sold to us these days is really controlled by these large transnational conglomerates that that aren't particularly interested in the integrity of those things so much as maximizing uh, viewership uh, and purchases uh, for that franchise that they own they own so you know while while I'm certainly trying to you know uh, be profitable and you know want to sell things um, I'm really doing this for a different reason. And it's, I think for people that, 
right. both have and haven't experienced this sort of game. It's a it's a fun sp- fun time to get involved in it because you can really have influence on its direction and how it grows over the next few years. Yeah, that's so true. This is this is the ground floor, right? This is the the red box era, so to speak. It's uh it's pretty wild stuff and it's cool that we've been able to to document it so clearly and that it all was able to kind of, you know, be crowdfunded and that the you know, early adopters have been able to be a part of it already. It's really cool. Yeah, I mean, really pre-sales this summer just I mean, it, it kind of I just never expected uh, such a response. You know, we sort of tried to stay away from the TSR stuff, um, you know, and I don't, I don't mind uh, discussing that um, a little bit more, but um, you know, and I don't know if you want to keep this in the context of uh, the interview, but um, yeah, I mean, we got a lot of, uh, or should I say the final podcast that you're producing? Um, We got a lot of visibility over the summer and um, not all of it was great. Um, Some of it was really good. Um, but it all came from this same desire that was there when you and I met at GentCon, mm-hmm. which is to really capture that spirit, um, which I think we began to do uh, in the context of TSR. But, you know, for a number of reasons, um, it got derailed, which is I one reason I stepped away from the deal. And I said, no, I guess I guess for now we're not going to use this. Um, and I had to sort of wash my hands of uh, what Ernie and his business partner uh, were doing. Um, you know, I've still maintained uh, my relationship uh, with Ernie because I think he's a really nice guy. Uh, he's helped me a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's my friend. And at the end of the day, like, he just loves playing with everybody. And uh, he just wants to get together with anyone and everyone and play D&D with them. And it's, I mean, I'll, I don't know. I think I'll ever get him to run Giant Lands. Uh, because he's so committed to his father's game, and you know that's a beautiful thing, and um, I'm I'm glad to have him as part of this journey. It's been hard, and he's an easy target, I think, for a lot of people. Mm. And he's not a well he's not always the most well spoken person. Um, and I don't think though that if you look back at what was uh, said that he gets targeted for was really that hurtful. I mean, we have uh, uh, trans people that play with us at Ernie's house and they're our friends Um, and we don't want to put them on the spot because it's been in such a hurtful place for so many people and you know when you get attacked and people say you're all these horrible things it is disturbing and it is hurtful when you're trying to make something that really is for everybody and it's it's a, a strange thing to have. I've never been there before. And maybe it's just where we are in the culture wars as, as they're framed right now to have something that I really wanted to make a, a safe space for everyone to come express themselves and have fun um, and conduct themselves appropriately to have it kind of turned into this thing as a symbol uh, for whatever people might misconstrue it as. And um, I don't really think that anyone uh, involved with it um, has had those sorts of attitudes and what's what's fun for me too you know outside the context of all that is you know let's just say with James Ward James Ward and I are very different people uh, we have very different political opinions um, we do not see eye to eye on many things um, but um, I do not uh, collaborate with people 
only because they agree with me. Actually, I prefer people that don't agree with me because that 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 that's how I grow as a person. So and we have James and I have a lot of commonalities, enough commonalities in our beliefs that it brings us together with our passion and love of this game form that he was was there to create. And it's a, it's a powerful tool. And um, it's been a very uh, educational uh, and uh, rewarding experience to be able to kind of walk with him through this um, as sort of a friend and a mentor uh, with it. Because he went through some junk uh, with the old school, so I'll say with the real TSR uh, back in the day um, that just wasn't fun. Um, Frank Metzner stepped in uh, to take care of a lot of the stuff, particularly with the big flare-up over the idea that Dungeons and Dragons was satanic. Uh, but that that really hurts these guys, and I mean, for him, it's still fresh. For me, I was like, "That is cool, right? Let's make let's make it really satanic." No what such the- thing as bad publicity, kind of thing. Where it was yeah, like, oh cool, well- <laughs> yeah, you, dude, you're totally right. I'm in the same. And boat. I. I I sort of wanted to make it re- with giant lands. Even I really sort of was like, yeah, let's make it really a cult, you know, because mm-hmm. what that's fun. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and pushing the boundaries and, and, of, and, of what's expected. And, and it gives uh-huh. people more license to be um, experimental. If they're like, well, yeah. what's written in the book is, is edgy. I might as well be edgy too. Like it, the, it gives you a lot Jane, of freedom. It does. And, but he was very adamant that, no, we can't do that because he saw how hurtful it was for people in the past. So, you know, I, I sort of I sort of understand that. But, um, yeah, it's been a it's been an amazing experience. And, you know, there's probably plenty of things that could have uh, changed there over the summer. But um, I'm glad for it because uh, suddenly uh, our game has a lot more visibility. Um, my company has a lot more visibility. And it's um, I think it's 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 raising some interesting questions for people. And, you know, my friends are still as diverse as they ever were. I've had people on both sides of the political spectrum write me off. But that's OK. You know, I guess if that's the way they are, I don't like to be around people like that much myself mm-hmm. uh, because I like to, you know, I tell people I'm not, you know, diversity in appearances is one thing. I'm, I'm more interested in a diversity in thought. And I don't. As I said, I don't want to be around people that agree with me all the time. You know, you surround yourself with yes men and people that won't challenge you or themselves to think differently. And that might not be the best place for you. Right. It's true. I was so confused when I kind of saw that news coming out over the summer. Um, Just because you and I recorded a podcast. uh, It came out, let's see, uh, March 23rd of 2020 about species and gender. And it was very you know progressive inclusive conversation so it just seems so strange that that there's a some people's perception is like that that giant lands is like yeah not not progressive at all when it comes to like transgender stuff which is not the case it's it's feels so misconstrued yeah yeah it is and you know it just again comes back to sort of our reactionary society that we have where you know, people just don't do a lot of thinking, I think is what it is. And we're, we're prone to uh, be reactionary and, and social media wants us to be that way. So I don't I don't blame anyone for being that way. But I think we've all can speak to how destructive that is to our, any number of the communities we're in, uh, all the way up to the bigger communities we're in as a nation. And um, we need to figure out ways to stop that. And, you know, as a game designer, this is one way I help. 
Absolutely. Um, one other thing was, I was just curious, because tweets have been deleted and stuff. Oh, yeah, ask whatever you want. Yeah, I was curious about the the TSR thing with the the trans person who had replied to it. And someone, I guess, at one point was, was saying, can you just say, does TSR recognize trans men as men and trans women as women? And I was curious what your, your thoughts are on that. And at the time, we did do some statements, and I gave my own personal apologies because I do have friends that are trans. Yeah. And I said, you guys, no, I, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm sorry if you're hurt by this. You know, I'm sorry that this is happening, um, but th- it's not the reality of it. But here, let me read you the, uh, the, gender sec- the gender section from Giant Lance here. And this is about the only statement I really wish to make about uh, sure. gender. Um, Giant Lance encompasses many species. And most of these, including sapiens, have multiple options for gender and gender expression. Unless a species description has a special note about available genders, assume that non-binary options exist and that non-binary individuals are accepted and integral in their cultures. Interesting, yeah. Um, So we don't have sex in giant lands, as we spoke about in the previous podcast. Um, we do have gender and, you know, yeah, you're welcome to assume whatever gender you feel comfortable with. That's awesome. Um, do you have any plans for, for taking giant lands to any conventions that are already scheduled? Yeah, we don't currently have any conferences planned, although, uh, Jim Ward is a staple, uh, at GaryCon and will be running uh, giant lands there, I believe on Saturday. Cool. That and that's great. at the, uh, in March March 21st and 22nd or something like that. I don't recall exactly. Uh, But yeah, we're ramping up to do a a lot of events this year. Uh, We're also working on on new product releases. Uh, We have uh, James is working on a module for us. We have a bunch of modules in the works. um, And uh, the idea is to uh, release new content quarterly. Uh, We're also working on some additional supplements um, as well as some different uh, printings uh, of the core material itself. Wow. Um, because uh, this, um, you know, although I, we might print uh, this box set as it is again, um, it really is part, you know, supposed to be, evolve. So we might do another print run or two of it, um, but the next editions will look very different than this edition. What, what will the modules look like as far as f- what format will they be in? Um, for, uh, the tabletop stuff, uh, it will be just, you know, like a traditional old school module that's great. that you'll get in a, in a book that's magazine sized. That's so cool. Yeah. That's, that's exciting news. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, uh, you know, I tell people one of the things, you know, and I'm, you know, maybe don't talk about my plan too much, but you know, I don't think it's that big a deal because it's a hard thing to model, but you know, what I'm doing, trying to do is model it after what happened with D&D. Now, I don't want it to take uh, as long, um, but, um, you know, I was always amazed, and I still am. You know, I use the original D&D books. I think I have, like, the sixth printing or something like that of the uh, the very first edition from 1974. And you look at those things, and, you know, some old school guys don't like hearing this, but I when I first saw them, I thought, what the, you know, how did this turn into D&D? Um, and you know, it, it went through this sort of organic uh, process of evolution through a community, um, that grew to adore it and it became something way bigger. So, you know, part of what I'm, I'm trying to do is model that 
And, you know, it's one reason I don't step out there too much as an authority on this stuff. And I haven't, I don't want to put videos of myself online playing it uh, because I'm more interested in the players doing that. And, you know, when we were kids and when I was playing, let's say, Gamma World or looking through deities and demigods, I couldn't, you know, turn to Jim Ward's social media account or whatever it was mm-hmm. and find him, find him on Discord and ask Gary Gygax questions. We just had to sort of make it up. And I think that was, you know, there's something really healthy about that. Totally. So it's a, and it, it's an, and it's an organic process. So we're trying to we're trying to truncate it a little bit, um, but that's uh, the process that uh, we're going through now. So yeah, I don't, you know, people act like, uh, or some people try to say, hey, well, why'd you release a collectible? I said, well, I, I don't think I did release a collectible. It it is collectible for people because it is a limited run. It won't be printed in this way forever and yeah it'll look different in future editions Mm -hmm. um so that's that's just sort of how we built it and it's uh and yeah it comes from these uh these old school influences so yeah we have um you know supplements um that for this first edition will will still stick with the digest size uh single column um and as we move to later editions now I, I, you know, I don't like talking about advanced, but, you know, this comes from James Ward himself because there's so many things that, frankly, I wanted to add to these books and mm-hmm. change. And he kept saying, no, you can't do that. What do you mean you can't do that? Is it the, just just save it, buddy. Just save it mm-hmm. for the advanced for the advanced edition. And then you can we can, you know, go long winded about this stuff and add a bunch of things. And so, I, I, you know, I understand that. And for me, when we get to the advanced edition, you know. I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I think part of me would like to be a Gary Gygax. I mean, who wouldn't? Um, But we have Gary Gygax Jr. working for us. And what I'm more interested in than uh, sitting down as some kind of art tour and crafting, you know, the next stage in evolution is uh, working with a community of players that are passionate about building a game that's for them. And uh, at the end of the day, that's that's who I make Giant Lands for. Fantastic. That's exciting. I'm I'm so glad the the game is is shipping and that things are like happening. Like it's, it's really cool to see the whole thing unfold and, and through the course of the pandemic and all these challenges, it's, it's happening. It's so exciting. It's really cool. Yeah. Thanks. You're, you've, you've been there through the curve and you know, and it's, it's just the way it works, you know, when you're kind of going through the throes of, of creating stuff and like, especially in the course of a pandemic, man, I mean, there yeah. were some days it was challenging for me to do much of anything. And I know that we've all had those days, uh, with through the pandemic and um but yeah we're there it's out and so now it's just a matter of continuing to march forward we have a lot of interest um both from uh players worldwide as well as uh some corporate interest so who knows maybe i'll i'll pull down some uh, big investment here at some point and we can scale up a lot more quickly but for now it's all organic it's all driven by our players and you know that's that's who we're looking to serve so yeah it's it's fun because when we met I mean, it really was just an idea mm-hmm. that I had sort of started working on. Although, you know, the the fiction of the universe is something that I've worked on for a long time. Right. Um, the name Giant Lands, I only really started uh, using about two or three months before we met. It was called something different when I first hmm. uh, got Jim on board and we tried to find a new name that worked. And so, yeah, it was you were there when I said you know, this is, this is the goalpost and we're going towards it, but we didn't, you know, and Jim was working at that point and Kim Eastland was working at that point. 
Um, and I had some traction with one piece of art. <laughs> wow. Everything else was stuff that I, that, that I had done. But yeah, we're, we're way beyond that now. Well, and, and I should say, so, you know, uh, thank you and thanks uh, for uh, to Amusement Sparks uh, for, you know, keeping Giant Lands on the air. You know, we don't do these regularly, but maybe this will be the start of, of doing them more again. I would love that. And uh, I appreciate uh, your help in getting uh, the message out there, Andrew. For sure. Thanks for being on the show, Stephen. That's that's fantastic. Together, I hope we can find new places within the imagination where we can grow and expand our understanding of what it means to be human.